Hello, my name is Gerard Dalziel, and I am the Chief Engineer at Engineers Without Borders USA. Welcome to another episode of our podcast series designed to showcase the work of professionally licensed engineers in humanitarian engineering. In this episode, we are sharing a segment from a recent presentation I gave, along with my colleague Elizabeth Diaz, about our work in building climate resiliency around the world through community engineering. As engineers passionate about the humanitarian engineering space, we have a unique opportunity to work at the intersection of engineering and other disciplines, in this case, climate science. To learn more about our approach to climate resiliency, sit back and enjoy this glimpse into the fascinating world and work of humanitarian engineers. Welcome to Building Climate Resilience Around the World and at Home. My name is Gerard Dalziel, and I'm joined today by Elizabeth Diaz, who is the program manager for our disaster response program. Uh, Elizabeth is joining us from Nicaragua. I'm gonna spend a little bit of time, but not much, on our current climate impact analysis. And then I'm gonna talk about what types of climate change data should we be looking at for our various project types. We're in the process of updating our climate change analysis techniques. So how are we incorporating climate change into our current projects? So we basically have three steps, assessment, alternatives analysis, and implementation. And I'm not gonna go into the detail on each one, we have volunteer village articles, climate change overview article there, and then detailed instructions in each of our plan templates around climate change. First of all, we do some research and pre-trip research. Normally our volunteers go down into the community. But the most important thing we do during assessment is we talk to the community about what's happening in their community. Is the weather getting hotter or drier? Is it getting colder, wetter? And more important, how is it impacting your community? Is it changing your water supply? Is it changing your crop production? Have you suffered extreme events like Nicaragua and Guatemala? The core of this step is to understand the health, the economic and the social impacts of climate change in that specific community. During our alternatives analysis, we're gonna take that community data and start to select parameters that we want to look at. A couple of examples in agriculture, we might be looking at the total wet season rainfall. Is it getting wetter or drier? For a bridge project, we'll look at those extreme storm events. Are they getting larger or smaller? And then we'll look at some of those preliminary parameters that we're thinking about and compare those to anticipated changes to the community input and see if what we're thinking about matches the impact that they're actually seeing on the ground. We evaluate those anticipated changes for each alternative that we're looking at. Does it impact a well more than it impacts a water source, an open water source? We look at that and we take those impacts, those individual impacts for each of the, the alternatives. And those impacts become one of our selection criteria for the preferred alternative, right along with cost, right along with operation and maintenance, that type of thing. So we're incorporating climate analysis into our alternatives analysis process. Finally, we get to final design and we look at the estimated lifespan of the particular project, particular technology that we're implementing. A bridge could have a 40 year lifespan. We look and confirm those preliminary parameters, climate change parameters that we've been looking at in the alternatives analysis and look at how much they're going to change over the anticipated life of that project, 40 years. 
we compare and look at the magnitude of the change to the historic data for that particular parameter for that location, say total seasonal rainfall, wet season rainfall. If it only changes 2%, that's not gonna have much impact. But if it changes 20%, now we have to start thinking about building resiliency into that project. Assuming that we do have a significant change, we'll estimate and adjust the current climate parameters by the anticipated change over the next 40 years and come up with the climate adjusted design parameter and the design our infrastructure pipe size, tank size, headwall size for that adjusted uh, parameter. Finally, in this world, we always have to think about cost and can we afford that larger, longer, harder piece of infrastructure? If not, then we have to try to push our budgets as hard as we can to build as much climate resiliency into that project as we can for the dollars that we have. So what should we be looking at for particular types of projects? We have six basic project types here at EWB and our far and away our most numerous water project type is water projects. There's two kinds of sources of water, subsurface water and open source water. Subsurface water, groundwater flows very slowly through the ground. So it's slow to react to different changes. So we might want to be thinking for subsurface water about total annual rainfall on the catchment for that particular well or spring box. Change in 24 hour rainfall, it's not going to react that quickly. Open source water, maybe we do look at the change in 24 hour rainfall for potential flood damage, but we also have to look at total annual rainfall total wet season rainfall, and for droughts, the days without rain. And are we going to have more days without rain in the future than we were looking at in the past? Another project type that we have is structures. Typically that's bridges or some sort of a building structure, a school, sometimes a water tower, a community center. But for bridges, 90% of our bridges are over water courses. So now we have to think about that big flood and is that big flood going to get worse with greater climate variability. If it is, if it's going to be 20% worse, like I talked about, we have to make that bridge higher, longer, and more armored against the erosive forces of the water course that it's spanning. Other type of structures, we have to think about location. We have to think about, are they adjacent to that water course such that we, we have to protect maybe that school against a flood coming up on that water course? We have to look at steep hill slopes. Can that get saturated in a heavy rainstorm and come collapsing down into that structure? And we also have to think about wind loading, hurricane loading. Will that structure, and particularly the roof, the connections to the roof, will they withstand hurricane loads such that that building will be intact after the extreme event? Another project type is sanitation. Sanitation is not that sensitive to climate change except for its location. Again, adjacent to the water courses or at the toe or the top of a steep hillside that might collapse. The last three project types we have are agriculture, energy, and civil. Agriculture is water by and large. Most of our projects involve water for crops. Again, they have the same variables as drinking water does or any kind of water supply. Energy, the primary parameter is total solar incidence. Is it getting wetter and cloudier? And we have to make that array bigger and or extreme events, again, wind loading. We want that solar array to survive a hurricane so that it can be supplying power post-disaster when it might be the most important thing you can do. Civil is kind of our catch-all 
category four projects. And most of our civil projects involve roads or grading or something like that. And again, we have to look at the location as far as flooding and as far as land movement, landslides, that type of thing. So now I'm gonna switch. That's what we've been doing in the past. I'm gonna switch to some of the things we're looking at. And this is a work in progress. First thing we're gonna do is maybe bring climate change consideration further up into the process. Because if we look at climate change and we think about what may happen in that area, let's just use the example of a community that, that's getting their water from an open water course. If it's less rainfall, it's drying up, we may wanna think about a well instead of that water course, which means during the assessment, we might need a geohydrologic study. We need to plan for that. So that, that moves that process up earlier into the process. We may have to look further afield for water sources, additional survey. Some of our civil type are location sensitive, so we may have to survey other areas and get ground elevation data. Second thing we're gonna be doing is looking at signs of climate change as they occur around the community. Most obvious ones will be flood damage, high water marks, erosion, slope failure, and, and recent land movement. Those are, are kind of obvious. More subtle is changes in both natural plants and the growth patterns of the community's crops. And to understand that, we really need to have that climate dialogue with the community, with the community members, because they will be the ones that are most sensitive, have the most knowledge about what's happening to their crops and to their environment. What should you be thinking about as to how to adapt and build resilience into that project. So this is a work in progress coming in 2022. Finally, our current methodology is global. We apply it in all 38 countries where we work. And so we would like to get more specific, more region focused. We'd like to get more region focused and provide more detailed direction for specific regions. Some of the things we're looking at is the best models to use, and maybe we'll use three different models, best case, worst case, and medium case. If we can afford the worst case, again, cost sensitivity, if we can afford that worst case, then yeah, let's build for the worst case. Try for the medium case if we can afford that, so on and so forth. So we always have to be aware of cost whenever we're building any project. And finally, we're gonna research specific climate models in specific countries. And so I'm gonna pass it over to Elizabeth Diaz to talk about the overlap between climate change and disaster resilience. Thank you, Gerard. So we also need to analyze the potential impact that disasters caused by extreme events that climate change is likely to exacerbate and will have on the different projects, communities where we work. So this is just an overview to get you thinking about this topic. But we are needing to analyze and research what is the risk that our community is likely to experience. So for this, we will look at the frequency of the hazard, the exposure and the vulnerability. And for the hazards, we can look, for example, at maps of earthquake, landslides, storms, hurricane vulnerability in the area of interest. Then we will look at what is the population in this area and the infrastructure and potentially other assets like agricultural assets 
in the hazard path or zone to assess the exposure. And then we would look at the vulnerability of the population and assets. So we assess the physical vulnerability of the buildings and infrastructure, bridges, houses, water supply systems, the existing assets that may have been built by the community members themselves, maybe without proper technical assistance or resources. So these will be also vulnerable. And if they are also not properly maintained, they're even more vulnerable. So the, we have to look at this in the zone of the hazard pass. So with all these factors, we will have a better understanding of what is the risk for our community, for our region in regards to a particular hazard. But we also need to think about an analysis of not just only individual hazards, but we see more and more how different events are overlapping in time and causing compounded effects for our communities. We've seen this through COVID-19 and the many disasters like hurricanes and the earthquake that just hit Haiti. We see this after there is epidemics like cholera outbreaks after a disaster. And so we need to also have in, into account a multi-hazard risk approach that will help our communities be more resilient. And this is what we at EWB will work on and continue to develop through a framework in the future. Thank you for listening to another episode of our podcast series. I hope you've enjoyed this glimpse into the fascinating world of humanitarian engineering and how we are working to adapt our engineering skills for important, timely work on climate resiliency. Thank you to our sponsors, NCEES, for making this podcast series possible. To learn more about professional licensure and how it can open doors for you to work on critical issues like climate resiliency, please visit ncees.org. Finally, if you'd like to learn more about our work or get involved with EWB USA, please visit our website, www.ewb-usa.org. Thank you.